Okay. The context of this is iron and clay. It speaks about a time of the end. And in verses 31 to 45, Daniel is giving with clarity a, an understanding to the king of the things that are going to be happening in the last days. They're, they're essentially signs of, of the times. He speaks about these things. He speaks about several kingdoms that are going to come after this king, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, he says, was, was a king of kings. He was a great king and he had absolute rule and authority to govern over the nations. But after this, this king will come kingdoms that are inferior to him. The context he speaks about here is in the latter days. Everything that happened here um, was future to, to Daniel and to this king. They were all yet future. They weren't happening right at that time. They were going to happen in the in the future to the king, uh, to to the to the kingdom and to the world. Where we are standing, in the in the viewpoint of history, most of this was in the past. Most of this is now past from us. Yeah, think you know, I'll have a drink of water. Sorry, I'm choking up. There's, it's a bit warm in the house. Most of these, these things are past for us. They're not, they're not a part of, of our future, but they're mostly a part of our past, except for one. One part of the kingdom, however, is not a part of the past. One part of the kingdom is yet part of the future, and it's part of this fourth kingdom. Daniel notes the kingdoms and the kings that are represented, the head of fine gold, the breasts of the breast and his arms of, of silver, the belly and the thighs of brass, legs of iron, his feet, part of iron and part of, clay, part of clay. And as you move on through the scriptures, you start realizing exactly who he's referring to. The Bible actually tells us clearly who this is. Babylon is the head of, the head of gold. The Medo-Persian Empire is the breast, breast, breastplate and the, and the arms, the Medo and the Persian Empire. Legs of iron, there's two, the belly of brass, that speaks about the Greek Empire and the Bible again brings that clarity later on in the, um, in the passage of Scripture. So this isn't, this isn't something that's subject to our, our, our own uh, concoctions. We're not coming up with these things on our own. His legs of iron and his feet part of iron and part of clay, the legs represent the Roman and the Holy Roman Empire and naturally split as the Roman Empire was in East and west, especially the Holy Roman Empire. And this empire lasted for, well, nigh on a thousand years. The popular consideration is given with respect to that understanding of all of these empires, but then we're drawn our attention to the feet, part of iron and part of clay. Now, this is still part of that fourth empire. There's not a, there's not, this isn't a separate empire. It, it, Daniel gives us a picture that it's a, a continuation of that fourth empire, yet distinct, yet distinct, and perhaps distinct in time and history. We understand that these, the, the feet, part of iron and part of clay, also represents uh, ten kings. The toes represent ten kings. This is part of that fourth empire. It's synonymously represented by horns. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, 720, 724, Revelation 12, 3, Revelation 13, 1, 17, 3 and 7, 12 and 16. And it's related directly to kings. Daniel 7, 23. He speaks about it again and he says, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall arise after them and he shall be diverse from the first and he shall subdue three kings. Daniel chapter 7 verses 23 to 24. So the latter days are represented by this portion of the dream. And it's that portion that is yet to come. Even for us, it's a portion that's yet to come. There's been a lot of speculation in the time past with respect to who these, these kings are. Many people have wanted to actually set this in the past rather than in the future. 
So they looked at the Roman Empire at the time and they'd also seen um, other other kings within that empire that, 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 that still governed in their areas. We think of the Huns in Hungary, the Ostrogoths in, in, in Magia, in the Visigoths, the, the Suevs, the, the Vandals, the Franks, the Burgundians and the Saxons and so on. There's 10 of them that they've numbered here, but the, the difference between what's represented historically and what's represented in the text of the Bible is that these were a subjugated people. They were a subjugated kingdom. They weren't giving honour to the empire as a whole. They weren't a part of that empire. They didn't receive the power from the beast to rule and they certainly didn't have one mind toward the empire. We certainly know that with respect to the overrunning and overruling of of the Roman Empire uh, and the military aspect of it. The text in the scripture in, in Revelation 17 says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. That's not represented historically. It doesn't matter which way you cut it. So they tried to, they tried to bring those things together, but they, um, uh, but they fail in that regard. The Holy Roman Empire under the Roman Catholic system had conquered many more lands indeed that, uh, than, than the kingdom itself had conquered when it was, when it was uh, militarily uh, doing its work. And it speaks about perhaps this is the reason why this kingdom was diverse from all kingdoms. In the latter days of this kingdom, therefore, it's described as being divided, somehow unable to hold perfectly together. It speaks of iron and clay. And iron and clay doesn't mix. It doesn't, doesn't hold together. It won't bind. No matter how much you heat up the clay, it can't form part of, part of the iron. Those two can only ever be, be separated. The toes were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken, says the text. The context of this passage is that of authority and strength. It's, it's not going to coalesce with the common man. There is going to be a, a tremendous distinction between the ruling authority and the common man. Currently, there is somewhat of a link. In a, in a democratic system that we have, we vote for those who are going to be representing us in power. This is an authority that's very distinct. This is an authority that doesn't give any indication that there's going to be any links between the common man and the ruling elite, those who will govern over us. And indeed, we can actually see that coming together in the United Nations today where there is no, there's no direct vote of the common people towards a body, an organisation that is overarching globally around the world. We don't have a say in who represents us in the United Nations. We don't have a say in the body that actually is creating the laws to which our own country is, is following and many other countries are following. We'll deal with that a little bit more next time. I just want to quickly address one fanciful idea, one strange idea that, that does come across. In, in verse 30, 43, it speaks about the phrase that they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. The text there in verse 33, is a, it's, it's a little bit vague, but the plural they... And it's mainly because the plural they doesn't really have a direct antecedent. It, it, the only one that's there is these kings in the next verse. Please, when you are looking at interpreting the Bible, please, please be very, very careful how you do so. There is no indication in this passage of a demonic attempt at admixture with, with men. Right? There is no relationship here in the passage with the mischief that actually happened in Genesis chapter 6 when the daughters of men and the, uh, and the sons of God, the, the angels, um, came down unto the daughters of men. There's no hint of that in here. So please be really careful about that. Right? There are other passages where we can go into those areas with respect to the passage in Corinthians where, it's, where it speaks about the women and, and it speaks about their head covering and he says because of the angels. Well, the angels are directly implicated in that. We ask the question why. There is no such thing here. Please, 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 please be careful 
please do not let YouTube be your final authority, okay? Because it will take you in places where you will not be able to give account of before the Lord. And, and I certainly won't be going there. The scripture doesn't have that in its context. It speaks about an authority. And that's the reason why there is a separation. It won't be part of men. The signs of the times of the end of days will be ultimately that of division. That's where it's going to be. It'll be that of division. Iron and the clay is a vision explained that, re- that relates to that of authority. Uh, but that will not be the only form of the division. There will be part of it which will be strong. There will be those, the lawmakers. They will be the ruling elites. But there will also be the clay to which I would look at as the common man. The common man in rebellion against those such authority. But to what extent does that rebellion go? How far do we see this division? Iron and clay. And it's one of the things that I've actually been looking at myself for such a long time because I've been seeing it so, so, so evidently coming to pass even in our days. So the question that we have is, is division a sign of the times? According to the text, it is. But are we living in a time of that sign? Are we living in a time of that sign? The first point this morning is relating to iron and clay between nations. Iron and clay between nations, division with, between nations. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew 24, 6. He said simply, And you shall hear of wars and rumours of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these the beginning of sorrows. There's a lot of things that stand really evident before us today, so I don't want to be taking too much time with respect to some of the divisions, but there are several that I wanted to note, and that, and that is, first and foremost, the iron and the clay between nations. We're going to be talking about that between religions. We're going to be talking about that within society and family. And, and to be perfectly honest, I can only touch on these. Each of these can easily be a sermon in and of themselves. The passage that Daniel is speaking of is that of a kingdom, partly strong and partly broken. Among the nations of the world today, there is a clear desire for unity. There has been a clear effort and a work around the world to, especially out of the First and the Second World Wars, to never have that happen again. We don't ever want another world war, not a kinetic one, not a hot one, not a military military type of war and the desire has been a noble one and it's been a desire to well that the only way that we can create peace within the world is to unify the world we need to we need to take down their boundaries take down their borders we need to pull those things that separate us down and we need to join together we need to join together that is the desire of the world it's part of what they refer to as the new world Order. And again, we'll, we'll talk to that when I speak about global government in the next sermon. This desire has been there and indeed it, was, it seemed somewhat successful. We had the, the pulling down of the Berlin Wall in 1989. I remember that. I remember watching that on television. It was an incredible event to see. We'd spoken about the Berlin Wall, the wall that separated the East from the West, and that was pulled down in 1989 and it was an incredible thing to see you recognize and saw history was being made and this was something to celebrate follow on from that and you had the pulling down of what was known as the iron curtain and that is the basic um well the fragmentation of the of the ussr how the ussr had the soviet union had had completely broken down. Its entire system had completely broken down. And at this particular point, you're looking at it thinking, this is incredible. This is incredible how all this has come into pass within a couple of years. These, these, the, the separation between East and West had been since the end of the Second World War, since 1945. And yet here we are, you know, some 40-odd years later, and all this has been pulled down. And it was something to celebrate. But as I stated time and time again, the effort towards a unification of the world will happen in 
one of two ways or both together. One is through cooperation and the other is through crisis. These rebellions could have been part of cooperation as well as crisis and they've taken down these boundaries. Anyway, soon enough, the boundaries of all of Europe were pulled down. The European Union began to form and the borders themselves between each of these nations have been taken down. Travellers could travel freely from one country to another. People could live freely in one country as well as another. People could work freely in one country in Europe as well as another. There was no, there was no borders. And until the current virus that's, that's, that's afflicted so many, those borders were up. Those borders were, sorry, taken down. And now the borders are somewhat back up again among them. Last year, Natalie and, and Maria and myself were able to travel freely from Italy to Switzerland to Holland and Germany. Not once do we have to show a passport. The plan for Europe and the world is one global village. That's the entire plan. That's the entire perspective. And again, we'll speak about that next time. Yet, there seems to be still division. So in the one hand, you've got iron, you've got this desire for unity, the desire for strength in that unity, and yet within that is still division. Though their desire is to take down these boundaries and these borders around the world, yet we're finding more countries today than there was back then when the, when the League of Nations was actually formed. The African continent has 60 new sovereign states from 1910 to 2011. The last one was South Sudan. The Americas have 21 new sovereign nations, sovereign states. From 1954 to 1983, the last one was St. Kitts in the West Indies. Asia has 38 new sovereign nations. From 1919 to 2002, the last one being East Timor. 11 of those nations were formed directly after the USSR itself was dissolved. Europe has 29 new nations between 1918 and 2006 and the last one was Montenegro. Interesting, isn't it? Though we're taking down the borders of Europe, yet there are new countries in Europe. There are new countries around the world that have only been formed in the last 100 years. So when we want to consider this this, this, this unity and this friendship, as far as an ideology is concerned, the strength of the iron, and yet at the same time there is so evidently something else going on. There's so evidently a division going on around the world. And nothing identifies, nothing can actually demonstrate to you division within the world other than military build-up. If it's true that we are becoming more and more unified, it should be true that there should be complete disarmament around the world, a laying down of the weapons. But we're not actually seeing that. We're seeing, we're seeing a build-up of weaponry, a build-up of the armed forces around the world. Have a look at this clip. yourself that sort of a question don't we? we have to ask ourselves the question is why such incredible military build-up around the world I mean to what end is this if this is not an underlying division within the world why this show of strength 
why this, this desire of individual nations to demonstrate their strength to other nations around the world? To what end? It's a frightening consideration. The Bible speaks also about a time where the kings of the east will be uniting. Is there evidence of the kings of the east? Do we see evidence of the kings of the east around the world? Well, this is another interesting clip. China and Russia, two of the world's growing superpowers, are getting closer than ever. The South China Morning Post looks at the growing links between Russia and China. The Chinese military official also met with the Russian general. So you have a potential alliance forming not only with China, but also with Iran. China have reason to deepen their ties. China bestowed an honorary doctorate on Russia's president last month. China is, by any measure, our strategic partner. Both Russia and China are permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, where they often block resolutions from Western countries, especially relating to Syria and Venezuela. Another key part of the Russian-Chinese relationship is increasing military coordination. Russian TV news recently showed joint military exercises. And these things are going on around the world presently. I mean, the two leaders of each of these countries are the current leaders of each of these countries. And here they are forming an alliance together. Are these the kings of the East that the Bible refers to? Bible does refer about the kings of the east, the rising up of them, especially for the Battle of Armageddon. So it is an incredible thing to be able to see. This is what we see, wars and rumours of wars, division between, between nations, iron and clay between nations. Well, what about religion? The Bible also relates to religion, a division in religion. There's a passage in the Bible that is really important because it gives us an understanding of something that is yet to come, a choice that is going to be made by individuals with respect to worship. And it's found in Revelation chapter 13, verse 15. Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, just one verse there, speaks about the rise of the Antichrist. A, we're going to be talking more about Revelation chapter 13 next week. But it speaks together about a global desire, a global enforcement order to worship the beast. It says there in verse 15, And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now again, I'm going to be dealing with this to the fullest extent I can in, in, a, in a coming in a coming sermon, so I'm not going to be spending a lot of time with it here. But logically, with respect to it, there is a forceful unity of religious worship that comes to the foreground here. And, and within that also, we see a passionate division. It says there that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So the text doesn't say that just that the entire world will worship the beast. It does speak about that. It does say that the entire world will um, fall down and worship the image of the beast. But to put in this particular clause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed also gives you an indication of deep-seated, passionate division with respect to that idea. There is a fundamental rejection of the worship of this particular image. This isn't new. This isn't necessarily new, and I'm not trying to bring it out as new. In the text, it's new because it's global in scope. But this was also there during the time of the Roman Empire and even before that, where if people wouldn't worship the empire or worship the emperor of the empire, their lives could be forfeit. We dealt with that when we spoke about the seven churches of Revelation. We went through a number of those churches. The church of Smyrna was indeed one of them, which would not give themselves to worship and as a direct result of that were killed for their, for their faith. In some other areas, it was different. Their privileges were taken away from them. 
So we can possibly expect to start seeing something like that within our own lifetimes. Holy war is a reality in Islam. It's used to justify attacks against both Christianity and, and, um, and Israel. And it will not stop until there is a covenant made between Israel and the many that come against it. There will be a covenant made, some sort of a peace treaty. And indeed, it's going to take a man with a plan to bring all that together because we haven't seen peace in Israel. We saw that when we dealt with Israel, that the entire world would come against it in the last days. So rather than seeing this coalescing, this coming together of nations all in love and unity, we're also seeing a division continually building against Israel, many nations hating Israel. And there will be a continual build-up of antagonists against Israel. There is, in Scripture, speaks about the Psalm 83 war, which is a war of the near neighbours of Israel against Israel. We already got 130,000 rockets and missiles in Lebanon under the control of the Hezbollah. They want to get a similar capability in southern Syria so they can rain these weapons into Israel and go beyond the Israelis' capability to defend themselves because they'd be coming from multiple locations and they'd be swarming at Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. They want to destroy the state of Israel. It's always been a strategic objective. They say it every year. So we had direct threats from Iran saying if the U.S. would never attack us, they wouldn't dare to do it because they know that our missiles are pointed not at U.S. aircraft carriers, but on Tel Aviv, on Jerusalem. But we have missiles going towards Israel. That's that's our, that's our first line of defense against attack. That's a threat. Conflict between Iran and Israel dramatically escalated overnight. Israel says that for the first time ever, Iran directly targeted its military positions, firing 20 missiles from bases inside Syria. So here's my message to the rulers of Iran. Your plan to destroy Israel will fail. These are part of a religious endeavor. These are part of the religious endeavour of Iran, of, of the nations that surround Israel. Their desire is to create that division. They want to destroy that which is completely against the beliefs held by a large portion of the population of the world in, in Islam. The effort to unify, the effort to unify a people um, was well represented in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11. It spoke about the Tower of Babel. It spoke about building up a tower that reaches unto the heavens that people can make a name for themselves. And that plan ultimately failed. The idea of being able to unify nations and unify a religion, religious system seems on the surface to be a very noble endeavour. But when it's unified in error, when it's not unified toward God, the true God, the only God, the God of the Bible, then it is a, there is another effort being made. There is another entity that is, that is moving these things and these pieces together to create this, this form of unity. And yet underneath it is division. There is iron and clay. The God of the God that the world will come to worship is as none that has ever been witnessed in history before. It won't be Islam. It won't be Christianity. It won't be Judaism. It won't be Roman Catholicism. It won't be any of the pagans and the pagan um, gods. It won't be any of those. The God that the world will come to worship will be diverse from all God's in history past and we get that understanding from Daniel chapter 11 verse 37 to 38 speaks about the man of sin speaks about antichrist or speaks about this individual <coughs> who will come to reign that he will not regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God for he shall magnify himself above all 
but in his estate shall he honour the God of forces. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honour with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. There's some interesting things, isn't it, that we can actually pull out of Scripture with respect to this religious worship at that particular time. It's a fascinating thing. So we see within religion that there is going to also be iron and clay, a division of religion around the world. Do we see any evidence of that happening today? Do we see evidence of of divisiveness within religions or a desire to come together and form to build up another religion? Well, we might have a look at that a little bit more next time. The desire of iron and clay within society. Iron and clay within society. Third point this morning. Revelation chapter 6 verse 4 speaks about a time when peace will be taken from the earth. In verse, um, verse 3, in Revelation chapter 6, it says, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Here we have what can only be described as societal divisions. Peace removed from the earth to the point that they should kill one another. This is not a matter of war within the text. The text here doesn't relate to war. We understand the relationship of war. We know what war is like. We know that its natural tendency is for soldiers to be at war and to kill one another. The text doesn't say that. It speaks about the people of the earth, that peace will be taken from the earth, that the people within society shall kill one another. This is a horrific thought, a completely horrific thought. The question is, are we seeing this sort of division being created within society today that is leading to an animosity of one group of people with another group of people, one idea with another idea? Um, there's protests and counter-protests to those protests. I've never seen that before. I've seen protests against the government, but I've never seen protests and then counter-protests at the same event. One group of protesters desire to protest peacefully about one particular thing, and all of a sudden you've got another group of protests that come in trying to argue against those protesters. And the, the peace that it began with becomes violent. We're seeing, incredibly, even war between the sexes, women against men. These are societal divisions that are actually going on around the world. There's division with respect to ideas. Ideas aren't even allowed to be spoken of and and, and the protests against those ideas can be violent. And again, we've never had this before. This is something that's quite unique. People in the past used to be able to receive ideas, hear the ideas and accept or reject them, one or the other. But that's not the case anymore. Berkeley, a university in the United States who was once the bastion of free speech, degraded to a particular stage of of riot when a, um, a, uh, a conservative individual by the name of Milo Yiannopoulos was invited to speak. And this is how it actually degraded. Overnight mayhem on campus. The University of California Berkeley erupting in flames as over a thousand came out to protest an appearance by the self-described right-wing internet troll Milo Yiannopoulos. We will not tolerate racism or sexism or hate crimes and violence. He's a fascist and Berkeley did not welcome him. At least six people were injured, including this Trump supporter who was pepper sprayed. The university cancelling the speech. Riot police even retreating to the building for safety. You can hear them urging the crowds to leave. I think we have a right to say that we don't want him here. And um, the standoff intensifying as protesters lit fireworks. Police firing back. It's going too far right now. This this. This is uncalled for. It's not going to get no message across. 
Yiannopoulos, an editor for Breitbart News and an avid supporter of President Trump, responding on Facebook, posting this video. Because they're so threatened by the idea that a conservative speaker might be persuasive and interesting and funny and might persuade, you know, might take some people with him. Um, they just have to shut it down at all costs. The interesting thing about that is, you know, they, they want to have the right of not having them him here, but none of those individuals necessarily need to go and listen to him speak. If they want to, they can completely reject it and stay away, you know. But they are also stopping anybody else from listening to this individual speak. Now, people have a right to speak. It's part of the market of ideas. It's part of the place where we can stand and speak freely ideas that have that we believe have value. Berkeley once fought for those ideas. And Berkeley, that university and many universities across the nation in the US and, and even here in Australia, are rejecting those ideas. There was also protests here in Australia against Milo speaking. <laughs> Just it, this is incredible. So these these protests or counter-protests, this division of ideas is building up around the world at the moment. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing protests and counter-protests, one desiring one thing and another desiring another. In, in Charlottesville, Virginia, there was such a disregard, such a disregard of... of uh, a peaceful protest and a desire to stand for peaceful protests that people started rising up one against the other. There was violence in, uh, in Charlottesville and there were a number of individuals who were actually injured and hurt until ultimately there was something that dramatic that happened at the end of that, um, of that particular protest. And it was a protest that... Um, Protest between people. It was simply a protest between, between, within a society. This is one society of individuals. This is one society of people, one body of people. And yet we have two distinct ideas, one being more violent than the other, and also anticipating that sort of violence. What we saw at the end of that particular protest was an individual who decided to take it upon himself to drive his Dodge directly into a crowd. He put his foot to the floor and just drove directly into a crowd. And when people surrounded the car, he stuck it in reverse and drove backwards, running over other protesters, other people within the crowd. And this is a horrific thing that happens, but that is the level of passion, that is the level of antagonism, that is the level of division that is actually building within society today. Iron and clay between the sexes. Well, this is incredible. You know, the Bible says that there will be a time where peace shall be taken from the earth and they should kill one another. And we seem to be seeing evidence of this happening even today. The Huffington Post editorial director Emily McCombs tweeted out her New Year's resolution for 2018. Two things were part of her New Year's resolution. Number one, to cultivate female friendships. Number two, to band together to kill all men. And of course, you're going to want to have female friendships if you're going to kill all the men. This is an idea that continues to gain ground. Men are trash is a saying that she likes to hear. Kill all men is found in the context of conversation between toxic feminists around the world today. The chants and even in a song. I want you to consider this clip. This is in Australia in, uh, on Q&A here in Australia um, in 2019, last year. When is aggression and violence a better option than assertiveness, strong arguments and modelling the behaviour you expect of others? Ashton? When none of that other stuff works. It's as simple as that? Yep. I have a great answer for this that a lot of people do not like. I want patriarchy to fear feminism. And there is a chapter in my book on violence. There is a chapter on, on my book about white women who voted for Trump and white women who accept crumbs from patriarchy because they allow their whiteness to trump their gender. I'm fully aware of this. But at the end of the day, even those white women have to recognize that nothing protects them from patriarchy. Nothing. For me, as a feminist, 
the most important thing is to destroy patriarchy. And all of this talk about how if you talk about violence, you're just becoming like the men. My question, so your question is a really important one, but I'm going to answer it with another question. How long must we wait for men and boys to stop murdering us, to stop beating us, and to stop raping us? How many rapists must we kill? Not the state, because I disagree with the death penalty, and I want to get rid of incarceration, and I'm with you on the police. So I want women themselves. I want, as a woman, I'm asking, how many rapists must we kill until men stop raping us? Yeah, but I just want you to consider what she said just for a minute. How many rapists must be killed? I disagree with capital punishment. I disagree with the state. I disagree with incarceration. So we don't want to put them in prison. We don't want anybody to be in prison. We want to kill them. But we don't want the state to kill them because we disagree with capital punishment. We want to kill them. I want to kill them. You know, within our society, we have what's known as self-defence laws, <laughs> you know, that you are able to be able to defend yourself if, if you should take it upon yourself to defend yourself. But this isn't about this. This is about kill all men. There is an antagonism against, against even the sexes today. The question was asked also about, well, can you please describe to us, your, you, you, you don't want toxic masculinity, um, which is something that uh, we even saw not long ago, uh, part of our advertising, Gillette, a men's razor actually started marketing the idea of toxic masculinity. In other words, Gillette wants men to emasculate themselves. They don't think men should be men anymore, but men need to be more feminine. Okay? Needless to say, I stopped buying Gillette razors. They asked the question about positive masculinity. What does positive masculinity look like? You know what the answer was? The red-haired lady? I have no idea. She said she has no idea does not have a clue what positive masculinity says means. But another one actually says, and I quote, positive masculinity is an empowered woman. And this is the madness that's going on. And the ABC legitimised that sort of garbage by actually giving people like that a platform. Now, I have no problems with regards to anybody being given a platform, no matter what their madness of ideas are. But within that Q&A session, there was not a single person on the panel that was providing the antithesis to their arguments. Nobody wanted to, um, to, to argue against that madness. And it's still up on ABC View if you wanted to watch the full, the full episode. Please have a look at it and see what you think. There is division between the sexes. There is nothing that actually... It's not just now division in the sexes between men and women. Beloved people are now also divided within themselves. The entire idea of the transgender is a division within the self. Individuals themselves are divided within themselves. They have, they have an identity crisis being manifested within them where men now believe themselves to be women. They're not satisfied with the reality of their own gender, but they now want that gender changed. They want it transformed. They want to be what they're not. And this is happening within the individual. So we've gone from the world, we've gone to religion, we've gone to the division between the sexes, and now you're seeing division within individuals themselves. Camille Paglia is the professor of, um, of, of arts in the University of Arts in Philadelphia. She's an academic and a social critic on culture, and she's written a handful of books on this particular matter. She speaks about the disintegration of a civilization historically seen immediately after the prevalence of what's known as androgyny. In other words, the acceptance of the entire edifice of transgender in the culture at large points to an end of civilization historically. That's pretty curious. Have a listen to what she has to say. There's a couple of minutes on this one. 
possible for young people who may simply feel alienated, okay, culturally for many other reasons, okay, so that in the 1950s they might have become a beatnik, in the 1960s they might have become a hippie and taken uh, you know, mind-expanding drugs, okay, and so today you're encouraged to think that your alienation is because you are not totally defined, you know, identifying with the, your particular inherited gender definition. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very concerned about this. I think that a lot of it, uh, I think that the, that the, that the uh, collaboration of the bureaucratic machinery with it has to do with the assault on masculinity, okay? Ah, okay, so you see, trans the gender doesn't really exist. It's not really polarity. I mean, it's, it, it, everything's all about expanding women's rights, but also terminating men, okay, and, and defining men out of existence. Masculinity is, by definition, toxic. Okay? Masculinity doesn't exist. And you see, this is, this is the proof of but now I began my all my studies. My, my book Sexual Personae began as a dissertation at Yale uh, Graduate School on androgyny. I've always been fascinated, attracted, you know, to the subject of androgyny, uh, and, and that's what sexual personae is. I explored it in history. But the, the more I explored it, I realized that um, that historically. This uh, this uh, the movement toward androgyny occurs in late phases of culture. Okay, as a as if a civilization is starting to uh, unravel. Okay, and that, that you can find it again and again and again through history in the in, in the in the Greek art. Okay, you can you can see it happening. All of a sudden, okay, there's a, there's a kind of uh, you know the, the the sculptures of of um, of uh, handsome nude young men athletes that used to be very robust. Okay, in the archaic period, suddenly begin to seem like wet noodles. Okay, uh, toward the end. Okay, and, the, uh, and that and that the people who 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 live in such periods, a late phase of culture. Whether it's, it's the Hellenistic era, whether it's the Roman Empire, whether it's it's uh, the Mauve decade of Oscar Wilde in the 1890s, whether it's Weimar Germany, people who live in such times, okay, feel that um, they're very sophisticated, they're very cosmopolitan, okay, and homosexuality, heterosexuality, so what, anything goes, and so on, all right, and so, and but but we, from the perspective of, of historical distance, okay, you can see that it's a culture that no longer believes in itself, okay, and then and, and then what you what you invariably get are are you know are are, are people who are convinced of the power of heroic masculinity, okay, on the edges, whether they're the Vandals and the Huns, okay, or whether or whether they're the barbarians of ISIS, okay, you see them, you know, starting to mass on the outsides of the culture, and that's what we have right now. That there is a tremendous uh, and, and and rather terrifying disconnect between the infatuation with the transgender movement on, in, in our own culture and what's going on out there. Okay, all right. and, so, and so I mean that's why I'm concerned. I feel it's ominous. Okay, I I, I question whether uh, the transgender uh, choice is um, in, indeed genuine in every every single case. Uh, but what again, what concerns me is when uh, well-meaning uh, adults, you know, believe that they are helping people uh, by by making the easier uh, some permanent change in the body from which there is no going back. She speaks 100 miles a minute, but um, you, you read some of her material and what she talks about, she makes perfect sense. The end of a civilization historically has been identified by um, the transgender nature of the people within it, people being dissatisfied, divided even within themselves about their own identity. But she relates to something very interesting there. She speaks about those who are fairly sure of their gender and of their masculinity and the like. These are the ones that are gathering on the outside, ready to be able to overtake the culture on the inside. And it's exactly what we have seen historically happen around the world. So this is one of those things that we actually see. So we see a disintegration or a division within the nations. We see the division within religion. We see the division happening within society. We see the division happening also within our own selves. We've got iron and clay all over the place here, nothing quite holding together. And the last of the points this morning is man's foes shall be they of his own household. In other words, division within the family, division within the family. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 21. He said, and brother shall deliver up the brother to death and the father of the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Fratricide. 
Fratricide is the act of killing one's own brother. It's done either directly or it's done indirectly. It's murder within the family. And it's a horrendous crime. Am I my brother's keeper? Responds the first murderer of mankind to God in Genesis 4.9. God, God's response was in judgment against Cain. And that was really, really clear. God's answer is an emphatic yes. I am my brother's keeper. And we are to be our brother's keeper. But that's not the direction that the world is going. The world is not going in that direction. The world is going in the opposite direction. There is division amongst all these people groups and all those societies, but the division that begins within the family itself is the worst division of all. Why? Because it leads to an acceptance of division within the world and the outer part of society. If within your own family there is such division, such hatred, such animosity, such iron and clay, then you can't, you can't uh, not expect that to be transferred to society. If there's a division within the individual, that we don't even know what sex we are, then you can't expect that not to have an impact within the greater part of society that you form a part of, that you form a part of. And one of the greatest griefs that we have, we see brother killing brother, but we also see parents killing children. And nothing's more evident than that than the current malady of abortion in the world today. Micah 6.7 relates to the sacrificial nature of the act of abortion. And he says this, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 100,000 children are killed by their parents in Australia today, every year. Statistics for it are only an estimate because Medicare doesn't actually track it. It's part of Medicare, so they get subsidised for the cost of doing this. So it's not released for public consumption. At 10 times the population, the USA murder over a million babies every single year through this particular act. Since 1973, um, a distortion of the law of the Constitution permitted abortion and it became the beacon of darkness to unborn children around the world. In the last 50 years, according to one resource, 1.5 billion children have been deliberately prevented from making it out of the womb alive. Man, just, just trying to get your head around that, just trying to comprehend the evil nature of man who would justify and act like that towards their own children, it's not, again, something that's new, but at the same time it's, it's heartbreaking to realise and to comprehend. What you have here is composers that have never had an opportunity to write music. You've got engineers who were prevented from developing the means to propel a society forward. You've got singers and songwriters that could have brought some light into the world were prevented themselves from seeing any. Uh, the scientists that, that, that could have found cures to the most debilitating of maladies didn't even have the opportunity for breath. Uh, we, 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 don't, we can't imagine the death of 1.5 billion, not million, billion people in the last 50 years, the difference it could have made to our own civilization and society. Now, the world has this madness and this crazy idea thinking that, that we're overpopulating the planet and that's the, one of the greatest lies of mankind and you only need to do some basic math. You can, you can fit the entire population of the earth in the state of New South Wales. I don't want them here in Victoria. It's too many people. Put them in New South Wales. You put them in New South Wales and you've got a smaller population density, density than three or four different countries on the planet, you've got a smaller population density than over 30 different cities around the world. And you can re use the rest of the world for your veggie patch. You know, the madness of over overpopulation is a fallacy. It's false. And it's only there because it's an institution of Satan who despises man. Because every time he sees man, he sees the image of God. And he hates God. 
But the evil of abortion, no matter how much it is, no matter how wicked it is and no matter how many people have died as a result of it, is not what the text is speaking about where, where, where the brother shall kill the brother and the father shall, shall deliver the child unto death. Um, we could even be looking at euthanasia, for example. Euthanasia is another one. And now we're not only killing the unborn, but we're also killing the elderly. We're coming up with some sort of an excuse to get rid of them. This is a separation within family. Yet again, we're seeing that happening. Laws being justified around the world for people to be able to do, uh, be done away with because they've expired their usefulness. They put it in the guise of 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 of, um, of uh, relief of life or suicide or euthanasia. The word is a, a Greek word. It literally means a good death. But there is no good death with respect to it. Not not especially when we see where the, those laws end up. But the text isn't speaking about that. Brother shall deliver up the brother to death and the father of the child and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death and shall be hated of all men for my name's sake that he that endureth to the end shall be saved. It's what you believe. It's what you believe. What you believe to be true will be disdained by your own family. What you believe is real. The Bible says you will be delivered up as a direct result of that which you believe to be true. What you've committed, what you've committed is essentially a thought crime. It's what you believe that is disdained among the people of your own family at that particular time in history, at this, this, this sign of the times. It's a thought crime. It's a, it's, a, it's a phrase that's used and found for the first time in George Orwell's classic book, 1984. Down with Big Brother. Down with Big Brother. He could not help feeling a twinge of panic. It was absurd since writing, since the writing of those particular words was not more dangerous than the initial act of opening the diary. But for a moment he was tempted to tear out the spoiled pages and abandon the enterprise altogether. He did not do so, however, because he knew that it was useless. Whether he wrote down, whether he wrote down with Big Brother or whether he refrained from writing it made no difference. Whether he went on with the diary or whether he did not go on with it made no difference. The thought police would get him just the same. He had committed he had committed, would still have committed, even if he had never set pen to paper the essential crime that contained all others in itself. Thought crime, they called it. Thought crime was not a thing that could be concealed forever. You might dodge successfully for a while, even for years, but sooner or later they were bound to get you. 1984, page 15. Hate speech is the most common version of a thought crime. Sadly, the disappearance of private language and a willingness to have all our own thoughts posted on various social media entrapments only makes the search for thought, thought crimes all the more easier today. Notice I didn't say the near future. I said today. I said today. Our willingness to be able to post everything that we think on a social media platform makes it very, very easy to be able to dissect and analyse a thought crime. Israel Folau is our most famous case with respect to this today. He simply posted a meme, a, a biblical meme with respect to what he believed to be true based on a foundation that he believed to be true and he put it out there in the market of ideas and as a direct result of that he lost his job. They sacked him, they took away his way of living. It was a thought crime. You're not allowed to believe those things. You're not allowed to think those things. And you're certainly not allowed to say those things. So we naturally then move ourselves towards what's known as crime stop in George Orwell's book. Crime stop means the faculty of stopping short as though by instinct at the threshold of any dangerous thought. We begin to self-censor. We begin to self-censor. Why? 
Because if we speak the things that we want to say, if we want to believe the things that we want to believe, there's going to be a time coming where even our own family will put us and deliver us up to death. Deliver us up is what the text says. It speaks about being delivered up. As our world lapses into a moral depravity and as ideological wars are only ever a mouse click away, it's not difficult to see the iron and the clay forming around us. So how do we live? How do we live? How, how, do we, how do we live our lives knowing that this iron and the clay, this division, these sets of divisions are actually happening around the world? Well, how do we live? Beloved, this is not our fight. We live in accordance with what Jesus had spoken of to live. We go and we share the gospel of peace. We go and we share the gospel to every creature and we make disciples of men. This isn't, this is, the fight within the world is not our fight. The effort that the world has to be able to right itself from its own wrongs is not our fight. We are not there to add to the clay nor to the iron. Our role as Christians is separate to those things that the world is undergoing. Our role as Christians, according to Scripture, is to fight the good fight. And what is the good fight? The good fight is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good fight is to preach the everlasting word. The good fight is to bring hope to those who, are, who, are, who have hopelessness within them. The, the, the good fight is to bring light to those that are in darkness. That's our fight. And for every single moment you spend arguing stupidity on the internet or on social platforms or, or fighting against the government ideas or government decrees or this and that and the other, every single time you do so, you are taking away from the fight that you are meant to be doing. And that is the good fight. Jesus said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus lived in a time where there was no freedom to fight for, beloved. There was no freedom to fight for. He lived right in the midst of that fourth empire. Right in the midst of it. There was no iron and clay at that time. It was solid iron. He lived in the midst of it. And so did the Apostle Paul. So did Peter. So did John. So did James. So did all of the apostles of the Lord. But you don't see any of them, not biblically nor historically, fight against the political um, movements of the day. Matter of fact, Paul chastised and actually didn't chastise. He spoke to Timothy really, really clearly. He said to him, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. 2 Timothy 2.4 Beloved, the energy and life of a Christian is wasted on matters like this. It's wasted on anything that doesn't pertain to the eternal peace of many. We are to preach the everlasting gospel. Well, how do we deal with things practically within our own homes, within our own family? The division that's within your own homes, because this is where it begins. The divisions that are already seen within your own homes, you need to be the peacemaker. You need to bring those divisions and you need to bring them back together. Practical things. Have dinner one with another. Have dinner together. At least have one meal a day where you're all sitting at the table. can't believe we have to say that these days because there's so many people in families that they don't have dinner that way. They, they're all separated in their rooms and all over the place. Nobody's brought together at a table. Switch off the, the time vaporizer. Switch it off. You have no time for it. Switch it off. Turn it off. And be sure to spend time to, with one another, to talk to one another, to, to communicate with one another. Yeah, it might be hard to begin with, but it gets better, especially if you're all on the same page. Although you're not always on the same page at that time, but someone needs to do it. So make that effort and do that. Organise to spend time with one another. Remove that. As a, if you have a family, be sure to have dinner together. If you don't have children, it's just you and your wife, then organise to have time together as you and your wife. Go and, go and spend time together, have dinner together at least once a week or once a month, you know, just the two of you. And if you don't have a wife, it's time to find one. Get a wife, okay? One meal each week. 
together. Pray together. If you're both Christians, spend time praying together. Continue to facilitate that relationship that Satan wants so desperately to separate because the division is not of the Lord. The division is satanic and Satan wants to divide the world and conquer it and he is doing a masterful job. But within the Christian home, that is not the way. Live for the Lord. Live before the Lord. Share the gospel of Christ. But grow in that love one with another at home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do, dear Lord, give you thanks and praise for this time. And and I pray, dear Lord, that the iron and the clay that we're seeing so evident within the world today, I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would just bring us together as Christians and that we don't form a part of it but we see it unfolding around us and the more we see it, dear Lord, that we will draw clear, uh, nearer to one another. Families will draw more tightly together as they will grow in their love for the Lord. And I pray, dear Lord, for those families to which only one member of the family knows you. I ask and I pray, dear God, that you would be with them and that you would build up within them a hope of the wonderful joy of the Lord, that the word of God would be their everlasting stay and that they will work towards transforming and changing the things within the family. Bring them together, dear Lord, and let families, dear Father, be a blessing to you and also to glorify your name, to shine the light of Christ in the darkness that is around us. I praise you, Father, for this time and give you thanks in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.